It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Jota, Dundalk and Cavan. Order your new 221 Renault today from our extensive Renault range. Guaranteed delivery and low-rate APR finance. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. You're very welcome to Tuesday Afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Busy, busy couple of hours as usual. My Fleetwood Mac story continues a little later on. We pay tribute to legendary archaeologist George Ugin. Neve Sharkey is with us on the show today. One of the most fabulous children's books I've ever received. And that's saying something with the amount of books I uh, get sent in to me on late lunch today. Looking forward to catching up with her. Sarah Clayton Lee is joining us all the way from Saigon in Vietnam as well. Local girl working away over there. And of course, if you'd like to join in, you're welcome to do so. The number is 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text me to the show 1850-715-958 if you'd like to call in. Now, my first guest today, she's been tic-tacking with me on the show over the course of the last few months and I love when she writes because I can tell you she certainly is thought-provoking and she makes me think and look at things from different angles as well. She's a journalist, writer, broadcaster. I'm delighted to say hello again to Sarah Carey. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks again for taking a call on the show. And really the reason I'm talking to you, I sat up in my chair on Saturday as I read you in The Independent and the column you wrote in relation to COVID. Look, Sarah, can I put this to you for a start? Because you've covered it off, I know well. People are tired. Most of us have done all that's been asked of us and more. And yet, here we are. Are we back to square one again? No, we're not back to square one. Um, It is a sickener and it is exhausting. And when we see those numbers going up again, we think, will this never end? And it will. Okay, it will. It's just taking a bit longer than we had hoped. And what I was talking about um, in the column on Saturday was that I think that the government could pay more attention to managing the mood of the nation and that I think it's really, really important and not to simply say, suck it up again, here we are, this is what you got to do, you know. Um, Part of that does mean saying there will be a certain predictability about waves over the winter and how do we manage them best and how do we manage our mood best. And partly that means the public, you know, being a bit more realistic and not going through this cycle of we're free, it's over, it's done. And then feeling betrayed and angry and upset and depressed when we realize it's not quite over yet. 
Um, but partly that also means um, the government doing certain things that I don't think they have been doing and I think they could be doing to manage things a bit better. Like what, Sarah? Well, first of all, I follow very closely, um, Jerry, the way that the data is released. And one of the things I was recommending was that the daily case reports, and this has been going on every day now for 19 months, mm. I don't think that they are necessary. I think they can be misleading on a day-to-day basis, and I think they drive the news cycle so that every single day, every single news report is headlined by that day's case numbers. And it, it, it's keeping us stuck in this grind of all we see and hear of is the plague, the plague, the plague. And the other reason it's important is because they don't tell us a full picture on a day-to-day basis. What happens is, is over weekends, the numbers go down Mm. because we're doing less testing. Then there's a big peak on a Tuesday, maybe followed up on a Wednesday. So it looks like, oh, my God, the numbers have gone up, the numbers have gone up. They haven't gone up. They're just catching up on the weekend tests. Then they smooth out again towards Friday, and then it's Saturday, and there's low case numbers, and we think, oh, great, things are getting better. And... I believe that if you issued case numbers once a week, you would be able to iron out all those um, ups and downs and swings. Mm. And it would uh, stop driving this new cycle. And it would also give us a more fairer picture of what's actually happening and give us a case average. So, for example, even this week, the numbers shot up. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, they were up again last night. I was thinking, oh, my God, because I expected this to peak last week. But now we realise that actually they're clearing a backlog of cases. Mm. And so there weren't really 5,900 cases yesterday. Maybe about 1,000 of those were clearing a backlog that's two or three days old. So if you waited another few days, you could give us a case average instead of these swings and peaks and yes. numbers. Yes, you know, and, and that kind of thing. I, I think you're, you're spot on because we have the same at home every evening. We make our dinner, we sit down and here it comes. Are you ready? Yes. Bang! And, and you're right. And I think a weekly summary would certainly be a help. It's not dodging the issue. It's just giving a more accurate picture. The other thing you talk about is the Neffet briefings. You'd stop them. Yeah, and uh, funny, I was just looking. Um, there are obviously there are lots of commentators and lots of opinions, and we all come with different baggage and different viewpoints. And I was just looking online. John McGurk, who writes for Gripped, um, you know, who would be considered possibly more conservative kind mm. of right wing commentator, and Fintan O'Toole, obviously in the Irish Times, who would be a more left wing uh, liberal commentator. They both have columns up online right now that, in very different ways and in their own styles, are coming to the same conclusion that it's very very confusing and disturbing for people that the government the elected representatives have one message on policy and advice and then tony houlihan um head of nefet is coming out with different messages and this is most stark on the issue of antigen testing and my point is that we elect the government Okay, and it is the Taoiseach's job. I don't understand why Michal Martin isn't being more assertive on all of this, because I think he's a good man and is trying to do the right thing. It is the elected representative's job to decide on policy. And the way policy um, development works is that the officials and the civil servants and the experts advise the government, and then the cabinet takes a collective decision, and that's the decision. And instead, what we have is the Taoiseach and the rest of the cabinet saying antigen tests can clearly perform um, a useful um, role in helping us contain these waves. 
it's not a silver bullet. There are limitations, but there are ways we can use them. But consistently, all year, Netflix and Dr. Houlihan have been using 10 different arguments to undermine the use of antigen testing. And it's not fair on people. And actually what's happened is, in reality, the public have said, you know what, we're going to use antigen testing because they're reading other experts. They're listening to people like Luke O'Neill and Paddy Mallon and Kingston Mills and Jack Lambert, and they've made up their own minds. But as a result, they're having to buy them in the chemist for eight euro pop. And meanwhile, over in England, they're giving them out for free. Mm. You know, and uh, and I think it would be fairer on the people and it would be more constructive that there's a single voice from the government telling us what the policy is. And I work in the PR world as well. Mm. And the basic rule of crisis communications is you have one voice. Yes. And I think that one voice should be the Taoiseach. And, you know, okay, Boris Johnson is not a role model for much. <laughs> Jerry, <laughs> I doubt you. But they've got that piece right. Yes. That when there's a policy yes. change, Boris Johnson stands up with Chris Whitty, who is their chief scientific officer, kind of the equivalent of our CMO. And they're on the same page and telling people the same thing. Yeah, and uh, you make a, a very, very valid point, and uh, I think it's one well, well worth considering for sure. The bottom line, though, is as you know, and I've uh, I've had this as uh, my opinion for quite a while, and and you conclude really in in what you've written about it. The the basic problem here is that our hospital capacities, that crisis, is the reason why we're. Back in this situation, we yeah. didn't do enough. There's not enough ICU beds. Yeah. Now, look, you see, I do try to sympathise as much as I can with the health services yeah. because can you imagine being a nurse? Can you oh, imagine being a doctor? Yes, like, it's yes. absolute hell and you're probably so angry with people who aren't getting vaccinated or only got one shot or you see them queuing up to go to a pub and meanwhile your wards are full and you're thinking, what the hell are you doing? Also, getting an ICU bed isn't necessarily a straightforward thing of getting a bed. You need expert staff round the clock. So we added, I think, maybe up to 50 beds in the last 12 months. But we're still always hanging on by a thread. Mm. And let's say if we didn't have a COVID outbreak now, we could be having a flu outbreak. Mm. You know, Mm. like every single winter, every winter, there's a panic on you know, once something like flu or like COVID breaks out and the system is on the verge of collapse. And here's an interesting thing, Jerry. For the last kind of three to four months, we've been tracking very closely outbreaks in the UK. So when they go up, we go up about two weeks later. Mm. Okay. So Neffet will always say outbreaks are preventable. Maybe if you keep everybody locked down forever, I would more so say they're predictable. You can see them coming. And and I don't think it's fair that all of the burden is put on the public when they could be doing more things to cope with the wave when they see it coming. Another example of that is the testing capacity. Um, because we were doing so well in October, they started winding down PCR testing capacity. They were letting people go. Now there's a panic on because there isn't enough capacity and they're trying to hire private companies. They're trying to bring back all the people they let go. And if you go online today to try and get a test because you've got symptoms and you're following the advice to get yourself a PCR test, there are no appointments. There might be one for two days' time. But that means you have to isolate for the two days while you're waiting for the test. Then you have to wait a day or two for the results of the test. And then the advice is even if you get a negative test, you should hang on for another 48 hours just in case. 
Now, for a lot of people, what, five, six days? Let's say that's a child out of school all of that time. Let's say that's a teacher out of school. Let's say that's a nurse out of, you know, a hospital or something. Like, that's a long time. So having wound down that capacity when it should have been maintained, Mm. you know, at a high level was a mistake. Mm. So I think there are things that they could have been doing rather than turning around and saying, it's all your fault. Yes, yes, I hear what you're saying and so do our listeners. Uh, there's a message in from Tommy. If you want to uh, join in the conversation or have anything to say, 086-1800-658, WhatsApp or text me. Tommy's on from Trim to say, Jerry, that is the best opinion I have heard on radio during the whole pandemic. There you are, Miss Sarah Carey. Uh, there's a man really delighted to hear what you have to voice. The other thing we have to say is, of course, I, I got my booster two weeks ago, the third jab. Um, again, it- it's-, it's similar to the testing. You know, we let that drop a little when we should have been pushing on. But here's a point I want to really ask you about. Because yesterday on the show, I did say that I am fully vaccinated. And I- I've-, I've said this from the out- outset. And I believe in vaccination and the mm. good that it has done. And I encourage everybody to get vaccinated. And I did say on air yesterday that I really would prefer not to have unvaccinated people in my company, in my home or wherever I am at work or whatever. And it brought quite a reaction. And after the show, Louise said to me, and she made a good point, my producer said, look at what's happening here. You're going to set up the uh, conflict between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Have you an opinion on that? So, look, I understand why some people are nervous, you know, about a vaccine that, as far as they can see, hasn't had time to be developed and tested on a widespread capacity. And I noticed as well some stats that came out yesterday where a lot of unvaccinated people in ICU are not born in Ireland. And maybe they come from countries where traditionally there's been suspicion of the state, which Mm. is also very understandable if you've come from certain regimes. And what I'm saying to people is, and it's a case of all vaccination programs, you don't do it for yourself, okay? Partly it's for yourself, but you're willing, you know, you're, you're entitled to take risks for yourself. Mm. But you're doing it for the protection of other people and you're doing it to protect the hospitals so that if your relation gets a heart attack, they've got an ICU bed because it's not been taken up by a COVID case. So it's, it's, a, it's an issue of solidarity, with other people and the other issue is that okay maybe it hasn't gone through five years of testing but that's because actually the technology this mrna technology is 30 years old they're easy and quick to code up they didn't need to search around for years getting funding for research and manufacture because every government in the world threw money at it and that's what normally delays developments. There are really good solid reasons why this is okay and billions of them have now been administered to other people around the world. It is disappointing that that second shot wore off. We knew this from Israel uh, during the summer so we knew a booster was going to be needed. What is looking really good now is that booster does really soup up the immunity it provides. And there are lots of other vaccines, like I think for hepatitis, that are known to require three shots. And people Mm. who give their kids MMR shots know that that's a three and four shot thing. So I just say, please keep the faith. I'm totally vaccinated as well. I got my teenagers vaccinated the first shot that I could. And I'm doing it to protect our parents and I'm doing it to protect hospitals and 
Um, and I would urge people to do it as well. Is there a danger, just be, and I'll, I'll leave this now, that you are storing up uh, the haves and have-nots. You know what I mean? The haves who have the vaccine and the have-nots who, no matter what you say, said there now or I say are encouraged, yeah. just will not you know what I mean, uh, take the vaccine. Yeah, so there's a very fine line and you definitely can't make it mandatory, mm. you know, and I see talk of that going on in Austria and there's no way that I will go down that route. Yes. I think when you're talking about um, vaccine uh, rules as to where you can or can't go with it, I note that, say, you don't need your vaccine like to use public transport because they would say, well, everybody needs to use public transport, but you do have to use it in a cinema because that's optional. And I think they're trying to maybe create a line between places that people must be and, pe- and places that they don't have to be. And that's where they're trying to use the vaccine pass. Mm. Um, the only other thing I'd say, Jerry, as well, is like I've noticed on Twitter, I said something about the other day, oh, please, please, you know, get your vaccine if you can. And I got hundreds of like really creepy anti-vax comments in. But that's not reflective of society. Like most people are getting their yes. vaccine. It really, really is only a very, very small minority. And they're just having an outsized impact on the hospital system because they're the ones, you know, they're, they're occupying, I think, half the beds um, in the COVID beds in ICU. Most people really are supportive and most people have bought into it. And actually, Irish people have been amazing. Yes how they have behaved. Amazing, I have to say, and I want to say that to conclude yeah. today. And you yeah. are so right. That is the, the, the state of play on the ground. Anyway, Sarah, uh, thank you so much. I always value your opinion and your time. Thank I'm you. Jerry, would you mind if I said one more thing? Yes. I heard you at the top of the show yes. saying you're going to be talking about George Ogan later. Yes. And he was the archaeologist who made those incredible discoveries at Nauth and Newgrange. I knew yes. him very, um, you know, yeah. briefly, professionally. He was a wonderful gentleman and just a rock star for Irish history and archaeology. So um, my regards to the Ogan family and anybody who's listening. I did a nice article about him in December about what he had done. If you want to look it up on the Irish Independent website, um, it's a nice story about Lovely. how he discovered the now. Uh, yes, doomed. yes, and actually, I've just discovered myself an interview with him, a full interview. I think it's twenty-five minutes back in twenty thirteen, out in Newgrange, and I'm going oh. to podcast that uh, later on today as well, just as a little tribute from here and LMFM too. Great. But thank you for that, Sarah, again, and thank you for those kind words for the late George Ogan. Thank you again for joining me on Late Lunch. Okay, see you, Jerry. Talk Take to you care. soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Sarah. Carrie there, wonderful woman with tremendous opinions. Uh, She always, as I said, makes me think when I read what she writes. If you have something that you're thinking or want to say, 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Thank you for all your comments to the show. No vaccine, no state payments, Jerry. That would certainly soften uh, certain people's coughs, says a listener. It takes a woman to tell the truth, says Angela. Sarah Carey, brilliant. Uh, I've had both vaccines, Jerry. I'm awaiting my third. I have an underlying condition. I'm under 70 and I've been told to contact the hospital. Well, if you're over 60, you should get an automatic message. I got it from the uh, the authorities to uh, go for your vaccination. But I'd follow that up, to be honest with you. Underlying condition. Um, 
yeah, I wouldn't stand by and, and not do anything on that front. Keep your messages coming to us 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Now, my next guest is very far away today. She's originally from County Meath. Uh, she's the co-founder and head of content at Big 7 Travel. And she joins me today from Saigon in Vietnam. I'm delighted to say hello to Sarah Clayton Lee. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear as if you were in the next room. And sometimes we ring Mornington and we can't hear them. You know what I'm talking about, Sarah? (laughs) Yeah, the Wi-Fi can be pretty shocking, so that's good to know. (laughs) Welcome to the show. You see, I spotted you a few weeks back. And when I saw the name Clayton Lee, I said, I wonder is that young lady related to the brilliant Tony Clayton Lee? Yes, it's a, yeah, it's a pretty un- unusual name, I guess. But yeah, he's my dad. Ah, what a great daddy you have. He's a fantastic guy. And I see him writing away regular in the national papers and reviewing albums and music. He's terrific. And I want to say a big hello to him this afternoon. Anyway, young woman, tell me, Saigon, Vietnam, how do you end up there working? Um, I guess I, I was working in Dublin for, for a few years and I kind of just wanted a, a change of scenery and uh, to go travel a bit. Um, so I was kind of traveling, took a few months off work and, and traveled around Southeast Asia. And it was when I was there that I was kind of, you know, realized I really want to start something of my own and, and kind of make a go of it and work remotely. Um, so I set up my company almost three years ago now. Um, and I've kind of been living between Thailand and Vietnam now for the last few years. But um, the last kind of 10 or 11 months or so, I've, I've been based full time here in Vietnam. So just just kind of happened a bit randomly, I guess. Mm, good on you. And Big Seven, uh, the company you founded along with Niall Harbison. Tell us about this. What What's the idea behind it? What's the concept? Um, so it's a travel content company. So basically for most cities and, and places in the world, we've got uh, really good recommendations on where to go, what to see, what to eat, etc., where to stay. Um, and then we also have... Um, a kind of new launch where you can book your hotel stay and you can also book car rentals uh, through our site as well. So it's really everything from kind of, you know, figuring out where you want to go, what to do while you're there, and then actually planning your trip with us. Four big cities. Yeah. As distinct from, yeah. you know, uh, travelling around the country that you're specifically targeted there. Obviously, what you did differentiated you from a lot of others because you, you still work at them, but you, you were taken over when? November, December 2020. Yeah, we uh, we were acquired by a, a UK car comparison site in yeah November, November 2020. Um, so that, that was brilliant. You know, that was really, really exciting to kind of have that happen after such a short time, I guess. Uh, so... You know, they, they've been uh, really, really great. It's been a lot of fun, the, the lads there in the UK. So, um, you know, it's kind of building out the team. And as I said, like adding the, the option to be able to book your hotel and book your car rentals. So it's, it's, yeah, it's really fun to kind of see a grow with that, with the new team. You know, when it's your baby and Niall's baby, is it hard Ooh. to let it go? You know what I mean? When you, you've developed something and then suddenly somebody else sees it and says, I want that. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit um, like Niall. Niall's fully stepped away. So it's just me as the kind of the OG, I guess. Um, mm. But um, it's I think I was very lucky in the fact that like the, the new guys in the UK were very kind of trusting um, and, and respectful of kind of what what I'd done with it so far and, and my plans with it for the future. So they were, they were kind of happy just, you know, to add extra support and and make it grow a bit faster. But still, I guess, with the kind of the plans and the ideas that I had. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it is, as you said, it is kind of like, like a baby and 
then it feels like a little bit like it's not so much yours anymore. Mm. But um, it's it's for the best. Yeah. You, you studied here at home, got your qualifications. I know you worked in radio and print as well. And then you moved into this type of area. You, you are an entrepreneur. Can, can I say that about you? You know, in what you've done with this alone, <laughs> have you have you other ideas and thoughts that you'll uh, go with in the future? Um, yeah, I think I'd say I probably do. I mean, I think this big seven's definitely my focus for now. And I'm, mm. you know, still still loving it and, and loving living in Vietnam and really be, like lucky that I, I can kind of work remotely on it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure in the future there'll be more things that I'll do. I, I don't know what that is yet, but I guess that's kind of the fun of it as well. Mm, tell me about uh, Vietnam. You say you're between Thailand and Vietnam, but Vietnam in particular, of course, what they went through in the, the 60s and into the early 70s with war and the destruction that happened in the country. But I've heard from anyone who's visited, I haven't been there myself, that the people are absolutely lovely. Yeah, they're they're lovely. It's a really incredible city or incredible country um I'm, I'm in i'm in saigon so it's you know it's huge like you i don't i feel like maybe people have this kind of idea of vietnam as still being quite kind of rural and, and not so developed but um where i am you know it's, it's massive skyscrapers uh, they're building a metro it's really really great food and, and nightlife and kind of fashion scene and it's it's kind of really come up in the last 10 especially five or, or so years it's really developing so it's kind of a a pretty cool place to be right now to kind of see the younger generation, uh, you know, kind of really mm. doing some some really exciting things. So, yeah, it's great. And there's beautiful scenery, beautiful beaches, beautiful islands. I just, yeah, you should definitely get over there. You'd love it. <laughs> oh, my God, <laughs> you've sold it to me today and to everybody <laughs> listening. That's for sure, Sarah. There's nothing but good to say about it. And they deserve every good fortune that, that come, come their way. Do you, you know, a couple of things. Being a Westerner there, are there many from the West uh, working there or do you stand out? Um, no, there are there are a good few, like especially because I live in a big city. Um, there'd be a lot of kind of multinational companies here that would have uh, kind of foreigners working. Um, and then there's like teaching English here is really popular. So you'd, especially for people in kind of their early mid 20s, mm. uh, you'd meet a lot of Westerners here who are teaching English. Um, so it's it's definitely like, you know, I don't don't really feel like I stand out. Like maybe I guess my, my the area where I live is kind of more kind of local Vietnamese, I think, rather than an expert or an expat um, yeah. area. But uh, no, like everyone's lovely. I've, I've been trying my best to learn Vietnamese. It's not working out so well so far. <laughs> but uh, yeah, everyone's lovely. Do you feel safe? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, and I think that's like, a, you know, everyone, I guess, around the world are kind of different varying degrees of, of lockdown and stuff like that. And I, I think Vietnam was probably probably one of the strictest I mean for for a solid three months there during the summer we literally could not leave our houses so like you're not allowed out in the street and um, I wasn't I wasn't allowed out on the street to walk my dogs uh, they they you know commandeered the military to come in and, and organize uh, grocery deliveries to everyone and weekly testing on, on door to door and it, w- it was really extreme but I think that's kind of the the weirdly good thing about like a communist government is that everything's really efficient and they do it really really well and um, so I yeah I, n- I never feel unsafe like the, there's so many police on the streets there's you know 
Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I definitely don't feel unsafe, mm. to be honest. That's a, that's a, a facet of when you talk about communist government and regimes as well. The safety I've heard about China and that as well, and other places. Whereas we in Western society, a liberal society, my God, uh, you know, there's a fear in, in, in lots of places, even though we are supposedly free. Um, the COVID situation, there you are. And we've been uh, talking about it earlier on here in the show with Sarah Carey and the Irish situation. I'm sure you're keeping in touch with that. But, you know, three months, nowhere strict lockdown you uh, they mm. mean it when they say it it's going to lock down it is going to lock down what's the situation like now with cases at the moment um they're they're not so bad like they they really got the the vaccination rate up uh, kind of during that that period of strict lockdown so so now it's i think the whole country about 70% have received one dose and then Saigon where I am it's it's something crazy it's like 99% have received one dose and maybe like 70% two doses um, so things in the last few weeks have kind of gradually started to, to open up again. Um, restaurants, bars, cinemas are open, but um, everything shuts at nine o'clock. Mm. So that's the only thing. It's no no kind of you know late night partying or anything like that. Yeah, mask wearing, uh, compulsory, that type of thing. Yeah, everyone. That's yeah, and that's yeah. Everyone, everyone wears masks. Um, and you know, outside exercise, running outside. And I think that's. I, I came home to Ireland for Christmas for a few weeks last year and. That was one thing that I really kind of noticed was even kind of queuing outside the supermarket or for coffee, like for coffee I, I, or for walks even. I noticed that a lot of people weren't weren't wearing masks um, like outside. And even kind of before the, the COVID situation here got really bad, everyone just, yeah, you just wear your mask absolutely everywhere. Mm. It seems to be an Easter thing that's been there and, and a habit going back as well and we really need to latch on to it. As you say, hey, while you're with me, what's your favourite Vietnamese dish? Um, oh, I think uh, it's it's a noodle dish called Mi Wang. Um, so it's like a a kind of a noodle broth and it's with smoked fish, like kind of a smoked haddock and then chilli, a load of limes, a bit of turmeric and, and loads of fresh herbs and the, kind of a crispy rice cracker on top that you, you break into it in little pieces. It's, yeah, it's so good. I'm booking the tickets between your sales pitch <laughs> earlier on and the food and I'm a mad foodie. I'm on my way, baby. But listen, Christmas is coming, as you know, and you mentioned you were home last Christmas. Are you staying put this year or are you coming back? Do they mark Christmas there at all? They don't really. They uh, they celebrate Lunar New Year. Um, which is kind of it changes, but it's usually around kind of February, March. Um, but yeah, I, I will be coming home for Christmas this year. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that the situation in Ireland gets a bit better because mm. uh, you know that last year was pretty grim. I really just saw my most immediate family, which was lovely, but you know didn't get to see any kind of extra family or friends or anything. So yeah. really, really hoping that it'll be a bit better and yeah, get to see people properly this time. I'm actually confident. I probably have to eat my words now, Sarah. I don't think there will be a lockdown, to be honest with you, this year. I think we're in a different space and there will be more going on, just with a little more caution by people, as you mentioned there, as the folks do uh, in Vietnam. So Big 7 Travel, check it out. It's worth looking at. Thanks so much. Yeah, if anyone needs any recommendations for where to go, happy to help. Well, listen, it's great to catch up with you today and lovely to get the link loud and clear coming all the way uh, from Saigon. I wish you well. Happy holidays when you're home and thanks for talking to me today. I really appreciate it.
Thanks, Jerry. Have a good day. You too. Take care. That's the lovely Sarah Clayton Lee uh, of Big Seven Travel based in Saigon. Interesting to hear what the situation is like over there and uh, a lovely place. I've heard that many a times. I'd love to go sometime. Will I get the opportunity? God only knows. Anyway, please, God, we will be travelling again next year uh, with the uh, situation Again, improving as we turn into a new year and learn more about the situation we find ourselves in. Late lunch, LMFM Radio. Stay with us on the show because joining us next is the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Now, I have to say, it's time for the most distinguished guest I've ever had on Late Lunch. I'm Peppa Pig. This is my little brother, George. This is Bobby Pig. And this is Daddy Pig. Pepper Pig. Yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, uh, to, to Pepper Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Pepper Pig World. Who's been to Pans? I've been anybody who's been to Pepper Pig World. Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 it has uh, a, uh, very safe streets, uh, discipline in schools, uh, heavy emphasis on new mass transit systems, I, I notice, uh, even if they're a bit stereotypical about, about Daddy Pig. Uh, but the real lesson for me going to Peppa Pig World, and I'm surprised you haven't been there, uh, was about the power of UK creativity. Uh, who would have believed, uh, Tony, that a pig that looks like a hairdryer, uh, or, or possibly a, well, a sort of Picasso-like hairdryer, uh, a pig that was rejected by the BBC, uh, would now be exported to 180 countries with theme parks both in, uh, in America and in China as well as in, as well as in the New Forest. And uh, a, 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 a business that's worth at least six billion pounds uh, to this country, six billion pounds and, and counting. Now, I think that is pure genius, don't you, Peppa Pig? Uh, and no government in the world, no Whitehall civil servant would conceivably have come up uh, with, with Peppa. He's brilliant. <laughs> so, who was your most distinguished guest there, Jerry? Boris or Peppa? Peppa, of course. <laughs> Peppa. Peppa, of course. Yes. Holy God Almighty. You couldn't write I, it. I was sitting in the car outside laughing on the way in today. If anyone was looking at me, they'd think I'd have lost because I was listening to that again. And I said today, I just got to I got to do it. My, my, oh my. He was speaking to business la- leaders. You know, they said at breakfast yesterday morning. And he lost his notes and he lost his way. <laughs> Oh, my God almighty. I just think that is the best ever. I think actually we'll be playing the wheels on the bus for Boris next, but it'll be on that bus that he was saving the millions in the NHS that never happened. And the wheels will be coming off the bus shortly, to be honest with you. Uh, Jerry, I think he's brilliant. What? Bit of light relief among all this doom and gloom. Oh, it is light relief. It it is just fantastic. (laughs) It really is. 
You think he's great, do you? I think, yeah. And I think we should all now go to Peppa Pig World. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's just giving it the biggest shot in the arm ever, ever. <laughs> and you know, folks, you go through, don't you? You've been through it. I've mm, seen it myself I'm with still Ava. Going it. And Pippa, Pippa now loves it all together. And they just adore Peppa Pig. They really do. What a, a clever concept it is. There's no doubt about that. But by we'll have to have an episode now with Boris. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hand it to him. I do have to hand it to him. Good God Almighty. How does he get away? How does he get away with it? I do not know. I really but don't. But he's always been like that, Jerry. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start laughing again. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to control myself in a minute thinking about it. Oh, the Lord God Almighty. <laughs> Well, Peppa, Prime though. Minister. I don't think Peppa looks like a hairdryer. What would Churchill say? <laughs> or Margaret Thatcher. Maggie, what would she say? <laughs> oh my God Almighty, hasn't it just it's plumbed the depths? I'm not saying it's given us. It's given us. You're right. Mm. What a laugh! And a laugh is the best medicine you can have. It really, really is. Anyway, Boris, good on you. You gave us the biggest laugh. I'd say. I think Kier- he did it on purpose. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. Come out of that. He was clutching at straws. He was clutching at straws. He'll be doing the one now about three pigs talking about straw and building the house that blew down. That'll be in his next speech for sure. Anyway, getting back to Matters uh, musical on Late Lunch this afternoon. She's back with her new album called 30 and it's all about her breakup and split from her man and she's put it into this album and it's receiving rave reviews. Yes, it's easy on me from Adele on your late lunch. I think you should go easy on Boris. <laughs> never, never. There ain't no gold in this river that I've been washing my hands in forever. I know there is hope in these waters. I mentioned a few moments ago that we get many, many books to late lunch of all genres, lots of children as, as well. But in my time here, I have to say the book I'm going to talk about for the next while uh, probably is number one. A Field Guide to Leaflings by Owen Churcher and Neve Sharkey is simply brilliant. And one half of the deadly duo is on the line. Neve Sharkey, hello. Hello, thank you so much for such a nice introduction. It's just me today because um, Owen is at work, so I have to do double double job here. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God almighty, doesn't it always fall on the woman? Ah, uh, it's a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's great to have you with us. I mean Delighted what I say. This book just lifted my heart, my spirit. I became a child again and I saw in the book how brilliant it would be to give as a gift to a child this time of year or any time, may I say. The leaflings, tell me about them. Where did they come from? Well, the leaflings began life as uh, character designs in an old sketchbook of mine. And then myself and my husband, Owen, we've always wanted to do something together. Uh, And when we started kind of working on different ideas, we went back to my old sketchbooks almost as a starting off point. And these characters just seem to kind of, you know, grab our attention and just want a story as well. 
And we, even when they were just drawings, my own children, our own kids, they used to try to find them in the woods. So even though they were only a sketch at that stage, they kept asking us, would we make a book for them? Well, have you made a book for them and everybody else, Neve Sharkey? It's beautiful <laughs> in words and illustrations and everything about it because it's entertaining. It's funny. But there is a, an educational and a real educational aspect to this. Yeah, the book is it's it's a, it's a field guide to leafling, so it's almost like a hybrid of fact and fiction. Mm. So it's really, you know, designed to to, you know, introduce kids to the wonders of the natural world and in particular trees. And then leaflings are tree guardians, so they live in the tree, they look after the tree, and they care for, you know, there's all sorts of different types of leaflings and they're your guide throughout the book. And in particular, one little leafling called Flan, mm. uh, who is an apple tree leafling, and he keeps trying to butt in to the book as well. He tried to help Owen write um, lots of the words and he kept robbing my paint pots and and my inks as well to try and get himself into the book too. So you will find splashes and hints of fun throughout the book because he's a cheeky leafling. And the thing is about these leaflings, folks, they're just not confined to Ireland because they live in trees all over the world, Neve. Yeah, we try to feature, we start with Flan, who's an apple tree leafling who was like from Scaries in County Dublin. <laughs> but then it's a leaping off point into the whole world. So in Ireland, we have the holly tree, but we go as far as Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and we feature trees from all over the world. So you'll get to find out about trees and their myths and legends and also facts and the creatures that live in them. But you'll get to kind of like to meet leaflings from all over the world as well. Do you know what I love? You know, the little <laughs> flaps on the pages that are there. And, you know, you look at the page and you read and then you realise, hold on a minute, there's something under this. Let's lift it up. And it brings you a whole new dimension. Yeah, I think that was particular. When we came up with the idea, we really wanted it to be interactive. And our publisher, Templar Books, were just fantastic. They really understood and got the idea that there would be kind of, you know, lift the flaps, little mini books for little hands to open and discover. And um, there's even one tree, which is um, the Kapok tree, which is really, really tall tree in the Amazon rainforest. And we've turned that on on its side so you kind of have to lift the flap to make it almost bigger and um, like the book can't contain the tree it's so big mm. so we try to use it in really clever ways and um, throughout the books and I think if you're a kid yourself there's one page where you can write a postcard to the leaflings and their leaflings from all over the world and just that idea that you can you know cut out a postcard and send it my nephew um Reuben has been known to cut one out and and uh, send it as well uh, you're talking <laughs> to the biggest child in the world here who was very tempted to do exactly what you said there a moment ago I had to hold myself back to be honest with you I know actually my sister was saying once he cut it out then he immediately regretted it and yes. he wanted to stick it back in <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know for me I want kids to enjoy the book and just love it myself and own you know and just to dive into it so we want kids to almost take this book as a jumping off point, but then go out to nature, sp try to spot leaflings themselves. And I think if they realise that, you know, there's these little creatures in the world, it kind of gives you that kind of respect for nature as well. And it's just that added little curiosity that we wanted to bring to it. Of course, and it's more than trees as well, or leaves or the berries or uh, anything else besides. Because look at the illustrations of the hedgehog, the creatures of the woodlands and fields, the birds, they're all there too. 
yeah, there's so much to explore. I think like for me, um, there was a lot of illustrations in this book. Um, it's, it's a book, I've never done anything quite like this book myself. So there's hundreds and hundreds of drawings. As you said, there's books within books. So it kept me busy all through lockdown trying to paint this book. I'm sure it did. I look at your resume of books, like when you consider ones like Tales of Wisdom and Wonder. I love the gigantic turnip, I have to tell you on a personal note as well. Uh, the Ravenous Beast, Santasaurus and so on. On they go. This working you mentioned at the top of it here. This is the first time you've worked with Owen, yes? Yeah, we're married for um, over 20 years. And we actually, we've done little kind of artist books together, but never a picture book together. So this is our first book um, that we've done together. And I hope it's one of many. We're going to, we're working on a new picture book now for that will be coming out next year or the year after. So we hope it's the start of a working relationship. Oh, uh, it is for sure. If this is anything to go by. The only trouble is... You've set the bar so high. I don't mean to put any pressure on you, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, I always, you you always want every book to be almost better than the yeah. previous book. And we did, for this book, we did put our heart and soul into it. It was a real labour of love, I think, from myself and own and the publisher and everybody who was involved in it. It was a lovely world to kind of immerse yourself into you know, the world of trees and animals and the creatures who live in them. So, like, it was just a total joy. So I hope the next project will be just as good, but this one will be definitely special. What age do you say it's pitched at? I'm I'm trying to consider this myself, but I wanted you to tell me today. Yeah, for me, there's quite a lot of, as you said, there's loads of little information and little stories in it. I would say uh, five plus. Yeah. But I think you could you you could use it all the way up to kind of twelve year olds. Um, mm. I did do a workshop last week in Galway and on Clada, and I did it with junior and senior infants, and they totally got it. They're able to kind of immerse themselves in the world, learn about the trees, design their own leaflings. But I could see that teachers could also use it, you know, right up to sixth class if they wanted to do projects about different the rainforests or, you know, forest fires in Australia or any sorts of things. So you could use it as that type of, you mm. know, nonfiction resource, but also just the magicalness of the leafling characters themselves, I think is kind of, you yeah. know, the entry point could be even smaller, but the three-year-old might rip the little mini books out. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah they love to, to do that. Yeah, just watch the littlies with it. But Neve, tell yeah. me this, and you have children of course of your own I've had my own children grandchildren now and I see it with them what is it in this technological world of ours today that a book trumps every time as they go to sleep at night that wee story yeah I just think books just have that you know when you sit down with a child and you sit a child on your lap it's just an immediate connection um, you know, they get to just like, you know, it's almost wrap up warm with you when they're reading the book. They almost get the cuddles. You get the one on one. And it's just like it's just that special bond, I think, with reading a book that it, that you don't get with a screen. And, um, you know, the turn of the page. For me, the picture book is the first time that a young child will be have access to art. Um, for the first time, even though they're tiny babies and they might be chewing on the book. I think it's just that bond at nighttime to read a book. Yes. It's, it's just like brilliant. Oh, it's uh, so lovely. And here's the sad part that I just want to mention. And I saw you tweeting about it. There are children who will go to sleep in Ireland tonight. In Ireland, in wealthy Ireland, who won't have a book to read, who can't afford, you know, to... the 
parents can't afford to get them a book to read them to sleep. But Children's Books Ireland, you're a big supporter. Would you give them a shout out here at me today? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm a huge supporter of Children's Books Ireland. Um, I am a patron of Children's Books Ireland and they also run the Laureate campaign. But they're running a campaign just over Christmas to gift a book to 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 a child. It's basically give the magic of reading at Christmas. Um, and right now, as you said, there's children across Ireland who don't have a book of their own to read. And we're hoping that, you know, with this campaign, that giving the gift of magic of reading at this Christmas will make a huge difference. So if you want to look up gift a book uh, it's with children's books ireland and for 12 euro they will get that book into the hands of a child who would not have had it well i will be giving a child or two a gift of a book myself this year i promise you that because yeah (laughs) I, i want every child to have what i had as a child my children have enjoyed and my grandchildren are enjoying now and many people's children listening to us today and yours have as well it's a tremendous gift gift a book children's books ireland check it out folks it'll be something lovely to do this christmas time i'm saying this as we head into december many books i've read and reviewed and uh, worked with margaret madden our book reviewer on on our book club during the year a Field Guide to Leaflings is my children's book of the year. I just want to say that today. I've wow. received wonderful books and they all deserve the plaudits. But this book is something special. Own Churcher, you're not with us today, but I send you the message. <laughs> and Neve Sharkey, you've done you so a wonderful much. job. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Great Neve. To talk to you. Take care you of yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. It's superb, this book. It's superb. And I haven't it with me. I left it at home after reading it and that as well. But I recommend it highly to you. A Field Guide to Leaflings by Owen Churcher and Neve Sharkey. Five years plus. You won't go wrong this Christmas time. Good afternoon, Jerry. Love your show. Just a text re-COVID testing. My little grandchild tested positive yesterday with an antigen test from the pharmacy. My daughter tried her best to book a test online as her GP told her it's self-referral now. That's a PCR test you're talking about. There were none available. No PCR tests available online this morning. Hundreds appeared online for tomorrow. That's this morning. None today when my daughter tried to book. They were gone in minutes. She has gone private today to have the child tested. Cost €140 Euro for the PCR test. She also paid 50 for two packs of antigen tests for herself, her partner and another child. I'm appalled she has to pay this. She receives a carer's allowance as her child is on the autism spectrum. My worry is there are lots of other families out there who cannot afford this. My daughter couldn't, but she wanted to do the right thing. Fair dues to her uh, to get the child tested as soon as possible. Thank you for your time. That comes in from Anne-Marie. I'm glad to highlight that on the show today. God almighty, yes, testing. We talked about it to Sarah Carey early on. It needs to be ramped up again and made available to more people. And those costs are really, really expensive on that family. But they've done the right thing. I commend them on that. Now, Louise, you have a a word of warning for me, I believe. Yes. Well, according to the Irish Independent this morning and the uh, IFA, they're could be a shortage of turkeys for Christmas. Never. <laughs> what? I got me. Not me turkey. Yeah. Oh, mm. I couldn't do without me bird for Christmas. But could you? Seriously. Buy a big chicken. Yeah. Or like, a duck. Or a goose. Like, is there anybody that really needs a turkey for Christmas? I suppose not, but it's tradition. I um, know it's tradition. I know. People love like, it and... 
I mean, it's a centerpiece. This article is basically saying you need to buy you need to buy from your butcher supplier this week. This week. (laughs) You know. I suppose you do. Anyway, order them early. Yes, you do order them early. That's the thing. And so there's frozen ones. You can pick them up as well. I, I'm never mad in a frozen turkey. Why? Just me. I, I like to buy them fresh. I do freeze one. I always buy two every Christmas. Freeze one. But I use it within a few weeks quite quickly. I don't know. It's just a thing I have in my head. It's a stupid. It's a stupid owl thing that's stuck in this owl cown of mine, to be honest with you. But there you are. Anyway, Louise is just sending so you a message today. Just It's just seemingly because of the bird flu. So Stop. bird flu, they yeah. get stuffed. Stop talking turkey, order them. That's the message from Louise today on Late Lunch. Coming up after three, my artist of the week. Yes, Fleetwood Mac and we pay tribute to George Ugin on the show. But taking us to news, weather and sport, they were my artist of the week a few weeks back. It's the Bee Gees. Yeah. Order the turkey. And for sure... You'll win again, as the Bee Gees are about to tell us. Now, my artists of the week are Fleetwood Mac. 1976, we're going back, and the fault lines are widening all round as Christine and John McVie's marriage ends. Lindsay Buckingham and Steve Nick's relationship is a winding to a close while Mick Fleetwood's divorce was being finalised. Throw into the mix newfound fame and fortune, drugs and alcohol and a recipe for disaster was brewing. Ironically, however, all of these tensions and negatives combined to produce one of the greatest and best-selling albums of all time. I'm talking about Rumours. The band, unbelievably, worked through 76 and all the bedlam and released it on the 4th of February 1977 to universal critical acclaim. Chart-topping worldwide, album of the year, Grammy winner, and listen to this, rated the seventh greatest album of all time by Rolling Stone magazine in 2020. That's some accolade. Rumours has sold in excess of 40 million copies and is still selling today all these years later. It would be a hard act to follow and so it proved, as I'll tell you tomorrow. Today, from their seminal work, here's one of four major hit singles from Rumours. No stopping. Fleetwood Mac. Yes, don't stop from the album Rumours. What a wonderful album it is. I bought it again last year on vinyl and I play it at home on my little turntable. Anyway, more about the Mac on Late Lunch Roundabout this time tomorrow. Final break of the afternoon and when we come back, we're going to pay tribute to a wonderful man. He was laid to rest yesterday after 91 years of life. Yes, we'll be talking about George Ugin. Regarded as one of the leading archaeologists of his generation, George Ogan was laid to rest yesterday after what his family described as a long and happy life. He was 91. I met George back on the 6th of February 2013. We went to Newgrange that day, the uh, visitor centre, to celebrate 
uh, and mark its opening in recent times and to talk to the man really who was the man who opened up Newgrange all those years ago, along with Frank Mitchell, who was also involved. We're going to talk in a moment to people who knew him well. But first, I want to take you back to that day in February 2013. And here's George speaking about how he came to dig in County Meath. And it happened that the registrar of Trinity College then was also the professor of archaeology, uh, Frank Mitchell. And... um, Trinity had planned to do some uh, reclamation work on the Townley Hall estate and uh, Professor Mitchell, fortunately, as he was an archaeologist, as an archaeologist and registrar of the college, he was involved in that work and he did see a small irregularity in one of the fields which is suspected was an archaeological monument and that was an area that was designated uh, for uh, development as such. So uh, he uh, suggested to me uh, would I like to do an excavation at that small site and of course I did that uh, and it proved to be extraordinarily important because it produced the remains of a prehistoric, of a late Stone Age uh, passage tomb. But not only that, this passage tomb was sitting over an occupation site. And while an occupation site may only consist of post holes and so on, nevertheless, it was very important because we did know there were passage tombs in the area, of course, but we had no information at all about the nature of their settlements, the nature of their houses or their dwelling places. So it was the excavations at Townley Hall then that raised its... They raised various issues, it solved other issues, but above all, it encouraged us to continue with the work. It certainly did. George Ogan there, the late George Ogan, speaking to me back in 2013. I'm joined now by former editor of React and the Me, Seamus McGowan, and Julita Clancy, a student and friend of George. Julita, if I could start with yourself. Um, you were there yesterday at the service. It was poignant, but happy and a celebration of his life. Yes, indeed, and I mean, he was, he was there were so many, not only his family, but so many friends and colleagues and members of natives of Nobber and members of the Meath Archaeological Society and so many others, um, other former students like myself. Uh, it was just, it was, it was a lovely celebration of his life and he lived a long and, and very rich life and, um, you know, thankfully was able to continue his work and his research and his lectures right up till only a couple of years ago. Indeed, uh, he uh, loved what he did. That uh, Julita came across, even the day I met him, his passion for what he did, his love of it, his wonderful memories where it all began and look what uh, is there today and will be there forevermore. Yeah, and I mean, he, he when I first met him was back as a as a, a lowly first year student of archaeology in UCD back in the old Earthford Terrace buildings in 1968, and like I learned so much from George, and like he was. He was, um, I knew I was never going to be an archaeologist. I could never reach that quite high status. <laughs> but he was amazing and, and riveting in his lectures about the Bronze Age particularly. Um, and he later, he kind of sponsored me to try and do an MA in Israel. And it, it, it's a long story. I never completed the MA there. But to, to hear other academics over there talking about him and the high respect he had internationally back there, even in the 70s at that stage, 
as being an expert on the Bronze Age. But I mean, I, I think we, we and Meath have been so fortunate to have had him and that he has been so attached to Meath for so long and has never forgotten his roots here and has taught us so much. I mean, I was just looking back through some of the articles he wrote, some of which were lectures to our society over the years, and they really would be worth revisiting, particularly his lecture in, in our 2001 journal as edited by Seamus, in where he is, where he is, um, it's commemoration to Elizabeth Hickey, uh, another wonderful um, member of our society. And, and, and he said, uh, he went through, he traced through the whole development of archaeological studies in Mead and the importance of our heritage. And he put forward such great ideas for us to consider. And he also put forward his worries and concerns about the rate of destruction of archaeological monuments nowadays. And it would be really worth for all of us to go back and yes. study. And one of the things he said about Elizabeth was that it was a privilege to have known her. But the best tribute that we can pay is to try and imitate her deeds. And I think he showed that. He, he was never afraid to come forward. And I mean, others like academics and others can talk in great appreciation of the work and the achievements he made in archaeology and in archaeological research and in his mentoring and in the fantastic excavations at Nauth, of which I again had the fortune to be one summer. But, um, you know, we, we can, you know, follow him yes. too in his great courage in standing up for the heritage, and which he did. And yeah. he was kind of a lone voice sometimes among academics in that regard. Yeah, and uh, of course the importance of carrying on his legacy. You know, when he went there first and this all began, did he believe that he would ever uncover what he did or the, what he opened up for everybody else? Yeah, and it was not, it was not that he was there yes, that he was excavating. Yes. Like he was, yeah. it came from very tentative um, uh, research there and, uh, you know, initial trial work. And even there, like I was there in the summer of 1969, it had already been going on several years at this stage and they'd already uncovered the second passage, which was incredible, really, and people didn't know about that. And I just remember his care and his... His, uh, we were we were kind of working on some of the satellite tombs around there, but he had a vision bigger than us, and he had that determination, and you know the way the reports were brought out, the care of the finds, the um, logging of things, uh, um, just immense. But he was also he was also lovely to listen to in the evenings around the meal, and our fellow students would learn a huge amount from him then as well, uh, and. Um, he was like just formative in all our careers and all our knowledge of archaeological history and research and you know as he said himself in that article I mentioned about the importance of Meath because Meath archaeology has it's a core area and as he, as he said then it holds the key to the solution to many problems of international as well as national significance I mean I don't really think we realise how important Meath is in terms of national and international heritage and it is a, it's a tremendous pride for us but we do need to take care of it and George was always mindful of that always gracious in helping anyone who needed help and going to sites identifying rocks and things that people were dubious about and were concerned about and um, he never you know stinted of his time in that regard you know he, he just came to so many things talked at so many events always instructing but in a kind way 
and um, you'd never be afraid to ask him a question. You know, yes. uh, he was he was just a brilliant mentor oh, that way too. Yes, uh, um, a fantastic man, he really was, and his uh, work at Nouth, as you say, there uh, is seminal and will uh, mm. continue on. Please God, and there will be more discoveries in the years to come. Look, I have to leave it there today, Julita. Thank you for joining me and having a word, and uh, we're so delighted we can remember George Ugin on late lunch this afternoon. Thank you, Jerry, and sincere condolences to Fiona and family. Yes, may I join in those as well and offer our condolences from LMFM Radio to his family and friends. That's it on Late Lunch for this afternoon. I have a lovely interview with George, which I will be podcasting in full from that day back in 2013. But tomorrow on Late Lunch, we're joined by Sarah McLaughlin. She was one time one of our women with opinions. She has some story to tell us. Bernard O'Connor, author from Dundalk, is here too. And we'll hear Paul Murphy's tale of really disappointing customer service and more besides. Eddie Caffrey's coming next with The Drive. Have a lovely Tuesday evening. We'll see you back here 1.30 tomorrow. Take care. Bye. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Drawdown and Dogging Cabin. Order your new Dacia Duster or the all-new Dacia Sandero and Stepway. Guaranteed delivery and low-rate APR finance. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.